Welcome to episode 16 of CTU Speaks Corona Crisis. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm your co-host, Jim Starros, former teacher from King College Prep High School and current CTU field rep. I'm Andrea Parker, teacher at Robert Fulton Elementary. So today we're going to be interviewing Dennis Kosuth. He is a CPS nurse and he is currently on self-quarantine because he was exposed to the coronavirus and has been experiencing symptoms. He still doesn't have his diagnosis yet, but he's quarantining out of an abundance of caution. So we'll be talking to him in this episode. We will also be talking with Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey as he addresses complications with e-learning, teachers volunteering to babysit or provide child care for first responders and questions about spring break hello everyone we are here today with the chicago teachers union president jesse sharkey thank you for joining us mr sharkey yeah, thanks <laughs> great to be here as always uh, even if it's just virtual Great yeah. to have you, even if it's virtual. So I yeah. know this has been a very busy year for you and the teachers union in general with a strike. And now we are dealing with the coronavirus spread that's affecting yep. us um, collectively and the whole world. So in reference to that, let's talk about uh, CPS and the teachers. Um, there's been some talk about CPS teachers going to schools, to provide child care to children of healthcare right. workers and other first responders. What is the status of that? Well, I, I mean, the first thing is that, you know, CPS didn't have a, a plan for the coronavirus on the shelf. And they've been, um, you know, scrambling to try to catch up to events. And I think that there's a degree to which everyone has been, there's sort of a coronavirus time. It seems like uh, time moves faster. Uh, right. A lot happens in a short period. I, you know, it's incredible to think that, um, you, you know, you go back a couple of weeks ago and there was a hundred cases of this thing in Illinois and, and right. it didn't, and, and, and now it's uh, 2,500 or whatever the number is today. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, Partly, it's understandable they're scrambling. Um, the the latest I hear about childcare is that uh, starting last weekend, and as we're recording this right now, it's Sunday evening. So uh, last weekend on Saturday, so eight days ago, um, I got a phone call from the mayor who asked whether or not the teachers would be um, willing to do voluntary work um, in, involving childcare um, for frontline healthcare workers. And the concern there was that there are a lot of nurses, other kinds of first responders, EMTs and whatnot, right. who maybe aren't going to be able to go into the hospital, aren't able to go to their work, because they don't have childcare for their young children. Right. And my my response to that was, we're always willing to help. My guess is that a lot of our members would do that. We would need to be clear, A, that it would be completely voluntary, and B, that there would be provisions for the safety and well-being of our members that would go into a setting like that. Correct. And that, those are the things that anyone in a union would ask. That's what I asked. And then over the course of that following week, I didn't have any other further meetings or conversations with the mayor after that. Um, mm -hmm. But we did have some with CPS folks who uh, started, I think, to try to figure out what the details of that would be. Um, and then in a somewhat typical CPS style, didn't really communicate all those details to us, <laughs> right. um, communicated them to principals. And of course, principals uh, promptly leaked some of that information out. And that produces a thing where um, our email to members was probably the first thing many people heard about that. And 
uh, as and, and then it was forced CPS to respond. And what they what they responded by saying was, look, we don't think there's a need to open this stuff right now. Uh, obviously, anytime you're running child care centers, that's a contagion risk. It's people gathering in one place. Right. It's, right, it's right. little kids yes. crawling mm-hmm. over each other and all the rest of the things that kids do. And so uh, the question would be, is there a, a sufficient need among frontline healthcare workers that you'd be willing to take that risk? In, in New York, in New York City right now, I, I think they are in that situation. I, the last I read, there's something like 93 similar centers to this operating in New York City with some 8,000 kids. Oh, wow. But Chicago wasn't there. We're, we're behind that. So as of right now, as far as we know, this plan is on a shelf and uh, okay, we'll so see what happens with it. Kind of on the same line, the the Illinois State Board of Ed issued some new guidance for e-learning and distance learning. And I was wondering what the implication of that guidance is for CPS and CPS teachers. Yeah, this is a big deal. And my guess is this is a big part of what our member is going to be talking about this coming week. What the Illinois State Board of Education did is it said that the, the 30th, Monday, is going to be the last um, uh, act of God day, meaning that, that those days immediately when this crisis broke out, or not when it broke out, but when, you know, when the school closure or the school shutdown response happened, in which uh, they were, they're off, they'd offered some guidelines about how to deal with those act of God days. But what they're going to be transitioning to is, the, is sort of an acknowledgement this is going to be a long shutdown. They haven't said exactly how long, but, you know, it's it's not just going to be another week or two. And CPS is shut down at least till April 21st. Right. Uh, who knows what's going to happen after that. And so it, it's their attempt to issue guidance about how we would actually do instruction, how we do school when we can't okay. go into a school building and meet with our students. So this was a big deal. And um, I almost say... A couple things about that. The, the first one, and this is really important, is that the ISBE said that the concrete details have to be worked out through mutual agreement between the union and the school boards. Okay, good. And, and so I'll repeat that again. It, 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 the, the details of how work or remote learning is going to work have to be worked out between the union and the board nice. by reaching a, by bargained agreement. That is, they can't. They're not supposed to just simply impose this and then tell us about it or bargain the impact. It's actually a fairly strong legal standard. Okay, so I was wondering if you could explain what an act of God day is, as opposed to what CPS is wanting to pivot to with the e-learning. An act of God day was what is be called how we are going to think about running school in the immediate aftermath of the shutdown. It, 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 it references obviously snow days and other kinds of things where those days aren't counting against our attendance totals. It's not okay. going to penalize schools that don't run and those in that situation aren't going to lose dollars from the state. You know, it referenced funding and it referenced guidance for how we run school. And that was the yep. idea of act of God. What they're saying now is that we're going to shift to remote learning. Now, what does remote learning mean and look like? That there's a, a the ISBE put out like a 72 page document, uh, which is available um, online. I, I think that it's up on the CTU website. If it isn't, it soon will be. People can <laughs> read to their heart's content, but there's a lot of stuff in it. What it does not say is it does not say that we're just going to, uh, it's a school except by electronic means. It's not just normal school, only people aren't there. And the reason for that is is an important reason, which is that school has to be equitable. And not everyone is set up where they've got a computer and headphones and a quiet place to do school and then an adult to supervise them. 
uh, like that. And, and and even if we could do that, it's not even clear that we'd want to like subject kids to seven hours a day of screen time to listen to people <laughs> give instruction over a right. computer. It would make everyone crazy. So what they've done is they've given um, they've given guidelines that are a, a, a lot um, that are a lot hum- more humane than that. They've said yeah. have some understanding, try to have some flexibility and grace with people. The the parents of the students that we teach, many of them are dealing with small kids uh, at home. Um, maybe they're sharing devices. Maybe there's, you know, maybe they don't have high speed internet or, or it's a, a, a spotty connection, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, th- you know, the advice is to try to like keep instruction short, try, try to do things that are enrichment and interesting to students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as of right now, there isn't any really clear guidance that CPS is going to adopt yet on on how we're going to work grades. Well, the first takeaway that was important was that these are things that we're going to get to bargain okay, with the good. district. Um, the second takeaway is the district is going to um, uh, release much more detailed guidance on what remote learning looks like inside of CPS. Now, by the time people listen to this podcast, they'll already seen that document. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I have, um, I, we've done, had a bargaining session with CPS. We actually, uh, we did a couple of meetings, one Saturday, one Sunday. I was on the phone all day today and all day yesterday with our people. And we've actually like seen a couple of elements of it, but I haven't seen anything that looks like their, their final document yet. Okay. And there will be, there will be some stuff in it that we've agreed to, and there'll be a bunch of stuff in it that, um, we're going to need to, um, still talk to them and bargain with them about more. Okay. Okay. So I know that you said you all are bargaining with them and that teachers should be flexible in relationship to their assignments that they're giving students um, in reference to how much time they spend on the computer and things like that, like that. But how can we address the inequities in terms of um, parents or students not even having computers? And if they do, they don't have any right. Internet access. What is the alternative to completing those kind of assignments? Yeah, that's a big deal. One of the things that CPS has told us, and I, I'm not sure how far along this is or how quickly it's going to proceed, is that they're going to get 100,000 internet devices out to students. Oh, wow. It's a, it's a pretty big claim. Yes. Uh, one thing is obviously there's a lot of schools that are sitting on Chromebooks. We should, frankly, we should distribute those Chromebooks to students. We're not going to get 100% of them back. But, you know, and maybe so maybe we lose 10 percent or 15 percent. But if it's the difference between people being able to be connected to the world in a crisis like this and not, uh, I, I personally, I think it's worth it. I, I think that CPS is going to be looking along those lines. I also think they've, they've taken a look at, try, at at trying to procure hotspots and other ways to get connected to the Internet. And so there's going to be some attempt along those lines. So um, so some of that's happening. Also, the guidelines are going to have some um, uh, s- some uh, ability to say we're going to distribute paper packets. You know, they're already distributing food at, at, at most of our schools to many right. students. Um, they would have the ability to pass stuff out by paper for people who really couldn't get an internet connection at all. So an mm-hmm. attempt to get an internet connection, then an alternative. But it's not perfect. It's far, it's far from right. perfect. Oh, so if we get those devices to the the students and they're able to access the internet and all that, is there going to be some kind of clear updated guidance on acceptable use policy from the board? Because traditionally we've not really been able to video chat with students and things like that. That's sort of been against the rules to a certain extent. 
Is that going to be updated and clear, especially for some of the teachers who may not be familiar with how this stuff works, um, so they don't like accidentally run amok of some CPS policy? Yes. Uh, our understanding is that it, that will be made clear. Um, I mean, there's going to be a bunch of things uh, that people will be chewing over as they listen to this. Um, they're going to be, you know, hopefully some some real clarity about how many hours people are expected to spend interacting with students, mm-hmm. um, what planning looks like, what lesson plans look like going forward on this. Um, we've been hashing a bunch of that stuff out with the district. Um, it, but then there's going to be a bunch of other things that we haven't thought of yet that are going to need to get bargained as we go along, including like, uh, you know, a whole bunch of issues that come running out of what remote learning looks like. Okay. Yeah, I think it's going to take a while for it to hash out. So I hope that um, oh, yeah. CP- I just hope that CPS and um, will make sure they will involve CTU in the collaboration process. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to go to a final question, Jesse. Um, it's a totally different topic. But a lot of teachers are worried about spring break. We know that spring break is coming up the week after um, this week, um, our regularly scheduled spring break and teachers are wondering, yep. even though we hit, we almost had two weeks off in terms of not being at work, we still technically working. Are we still scheduled for a spring break? Yeah, it's going to be a real spring break. CPS uh, has told us that they are observing spring break. Um, the, the For our bargaining unit, people will, uh, it'll be a paid week of vacation without work responsibilities. So that that's good. I mean, you, um, you said talked about a couple of weeks off. I, but yeah, this is, this has actually been anything, but I think, I, I think yeah. people are realizing that working from it's home is really work. And if you add that to, you know, the people who are, are among our membership who are taking care of small kids at home, I mean, mine aren't even that little anymore, but my 13 year old is really making us all crazy. Yeah, uh, and you know, it's a lot to juggle. So I, I actually yeah. think people are going to really, um, deserve and, and need their break. The other thing I will say is that we expect all kinds of principal to try all kinds of stuff, right. uh, which is the reason that one of the agreements we got with CPS, and we'll be communicating this um, uh, frequently and in and, and every place that we can, is that PPCs are going to continue to meet virtually, of course. But, you know, we right. want people's PPCs meeting to back principals off. And then we're going to be doing both high-level bargaining and regular strategic bargaining with CPS over these set of issues. But we haven't given up our union rights. Our contract is still in effect. Any new changes have to be mutually agreed that is bargained with us in the district. Um, and so, you know, if people want to volunteer to give up their, their time off, um, <laughs> I guess they're okay. But my advice, you know, you'd be allowed to, but my advice would be don't do that. Um, people need a break. This has yeah. been intense. I'm not sure people realize stressful. how intense it's been. Thank you for coming to the CTU podcast. And I hope the next time we speak, it'll be some more positive news. Yes. Yeah, I, I really look, I, I, it's, it's nice to see you guys. Uh, it really is. But I, I, I'd love to um, get a chance to hang out and um, yeah, less you know, social hope, distancing. Yeah, a little <laughs> less social distancing. Exactly. So, um, you know, hope, hopefully the, uh, this this um, contagion dies down. We'll get a chance to do that before too long. Thanks. Absolutely. Guys. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, now we're back with CPS nurse Dennis Kosuth, who is currently on self-quarantine to be on the lookout for the coronavirus. His test hasn't come back yet. But for this interview, we've got some new voices on CTU Speaks. We have Christine Dussault, who is a CPS elementary school teacher at Chase Elementary, and Moise Buani, who is a high school teacher at Roberto Clemente High School. And here they are. My name is Christine Dussault. I am a 
teacher at Chase Elementary School and helping out the CTU Week team as a reporter. And I'm joined by two other wonderful individuals who are also um, in their homes. And I will let um, Moise go ahead and introduce yourself. Everybody, my name is Moise Bouani. I'm the delegate at Roberto Clemente Community Academy. And very much like Christine, uh, in this time, we're helping out the CTU Speaks podcast. And we're hoping to bring you some good content during this period and also hoping to give you information on how the Chicago Teachers Union is navigating this very difficult time in our communities. We are joined today by a very special guest. Um, this is Dennis Kasuth. Um, and he is here with us today making his second appearance on C2 Speaks. The demand or the need for our nurses in schools is becoming more and more clear. Dennis has been a nurse with CTS for four years, um, and then he worked as an emergency room nurse before that. And he's been a vocal advocate for increasing the amount of school nurses we have here in CTS and was a powerful voice on the picket lines in our recent strike. So um, thanks for joining us, Dennis. Um, of course. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm down in my basement. I've basically uh, self-quarantined. What happened is that in addition to my job as a school nurse, I, I service four schools up here in the uh, Rogers Park neighborhood, is I work one day a week down at uh, uh, Provident Hospital, which is a, a, a part of the Cook County Health System. It's right across the street from, from Diet High School, just um, so people know where it's at. And I worked last Friday. I was supposed to be an eight-hour shift starting at uh, in, the, in the afternoon. And when I got there, um, you know, it, it was it was, been, it was busy, which is typical for a Friday. But because there was a lot of nurses who were sick that day for some reason, and we were usually have six nurses on staff at uh, starting at seven, and instead we only had two. It was me and literally one other nurse. Um, and and it was a full ER. We had you know I think like sixteen people in the waiting room, a few waiting to be triaged, and so we ended up staying over through the whole night. And so that was one of the things that kind of gave me a preview of some of the things that are gonna, that are going to be coming down our way when nurses start getting sick. Um, but I'll get into that a little bit later. So in any case, I, I finished my shift out like early Saturday morning, got home, went through my week normal weekend routine. You know we've we've obviously. Um, I'm trying to stay stay in in the house. I live with my wife, who's a preschool teacher, my 12 year old, who's a student in CPS, and then my wife's parents, who are in their mid 70s. Um, and then on uh, Wednesday morning, though, and then I worked again on Monday at at the hospital. Usually, I try and pair uh, pair my shifts. So I worked Monday afternoon. Really, uh, no issues there. But then I got. Then I talked to my supervisor Wednesday morning, and she tells me, "Oh, by the way, on Friday you were exposed to two patients who tested positive for COVID. Um, one of them, I we had suspected it, and so I was gowned up, masked, eye goggles, uh, all the rest of it. Uh, what we're supposed to do. And fortunately, at Provident, they have had enough um, equipment for that. But the second patient was <coughs> somebody who." I got a call because I was in I was in charge, you know, which is not a typically thing because we were so short. I was on the floor in the ER, uh, a patient with abdominal pain, uh, cancer uh, patient, and so I literally got her up off the floor, put her in a wheelchair, brought her in the ER. Um, but apparently, she also tested positive, and so when I my supervisor was like, "Well, just so you know, we we can't test you." Our hospital is not going to test people unless you have symptoms. You um, should just come to work if, if you feel okay and just wear a mask, uh, which I thought was pretty 
strange. You know, you would think that you would want to make sure that nurses are not sick because who comes into hospitals? People with medical conditions, diabetes, asthma, COPD. Uh, you definitely don't want sick nurses taking care of, of human beings because we get, you know, very close to them and all the rest of it. So in any case, I called... I'm also a member of a union through that job, the National Nurses United, and my union rep was like, get your butt over to Irving Park in Harlem. The National Guard has set up a site where they're testing first responders. So I drove over there. I got there about like 930 or so, and there was a line all the way uh, down Harlem to Irving and then west on Irving another a couple miles. It was a huge line. So I was like, oh, shit, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get into it. The weird thing is that when I was waiting at the stoplight to turn left on Irving, someone's like shouting my name, you know, and I, I look at it's one of my old coworkers from uh, Stroger, my Stroger ER days. Uh, he's a paramedic and he's a firefighter uh, now. But he was telling me, so I called him up while we're just waiting in line for, for three hours doing absolutely nothing. And he says that the fire department has been telling people at roll call, we're going to check everyone's temperature just to make sure that our firefighters and paramedics aren't going into people's houses while they're sick. Um, firefighters, as you know, work a 24-hour shift. Um, and so at 7 a.m. roll call, doing temp checks. Problem, no, temp no thermometers at the firehouse. Ambulances don't carry thermometers. Uh, firehouses apparently don't carry thermometers. They couldn't find a thermometer. And so one of the people from the firehouse went to, like, uh, Home Depot or I don't know where they got it. They got one of these thermometers that checks engine temperature. And I was like, what world are we living in where first responders are using an, a, a totally inappropriate device to check the temperature of their workers before they go out to their jobs? I just couldn't believe that. So that was, that was stunning. Um, so anyway, I went through the line. Fortunately, I got in under the wire. There were 10 cars behind me that got cut off. Um, after that, all those people who were waiting in line behind me, after those 10 cars were basically sent home. And then that's another thing that's really being exposed to this uh, pandemic is how unprepared this country has been. And it's really no reason for that. People, I'm sure, have seen in the news how in South Korea, the way they've been able to get in front of it is to test people. They were testing tens of thousands of people a day in South Korea, as opposed to this country, which is, it's ramped up a bit, but definitely not where it was in South Korea. And the reason it's important to test people is that way you know if you're positive, you stay away from everybody. What's deadly about this virus um, is that it spreads uh, undercover. People, most people who have it don't know they have it. They spread it to other people when they go about their daily business, whether it's going to the grocery store or hanging out with friends or playing basketball or whatever, running on the 606 um, because they don't feel sick. But the problem, and then, and then seven days later, people who do have medical issues can show really severe symptoms um, and then have poor outcomes, you know, based upon what we're seeing uh, in all around the world, especially Italy, which is being very hard hit. So in any case, I got my test done on Wednesday. And since then, I've basically assumed that I have it. Um, so I'm down in the basement to stay away from my other family members. One thing that it's made me reflect upon is how fortunate that we are as our family um, to have access to that. I'm just thinking about all the people who don't have uh, access to this kind of stuff. My wife was at a at a store getting um, something yesterday, and one of the workers there was 
telling her how he feels sick himself, how he has family members in who are five, six people sharing a, a, a two bedroom apartment who feel sick. But he has to come to work because he doesn't he can't afford to not be at to be at work. He has a, he said he has a two month old at home. And if he doesn't work, he doesn't get paid. I mean, that's the thing that's really wrong with this country is and, and the reason that this virus is going to spread so fast is that people don't have sick days when they get sick. They come to work because they don't get paid to stay at home. When their kids are sick, they, they load them up with Tylenol, ibuprofen, and they send them to school because they can't afford to stay home uh, and watch sick kids. This pandemic is exposing all the problems that we have in our society, not just health care, but how things are being run. So long story short, as I'm waiting for the three to five business days, I'm not sure why labs don't work on weekends during a pandemic, but that's apparently the case. Um, my next scheduled shift is supposed to be um, tomorrow night, um, but I already called my, my supervisor and was like, look, I, I do have some symptoms, <coughs> just the, the cough and like kind of some chest tight, 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 tightness. Who knows what I have, but I definitely don't want to be spreading it. So my, my plan at this point is if I do test positive, obviously I'm not going to go to work. If I don't have a test result back, I'm not going to go to work. If it comes back negative, I'll, I'll do the shift. Um, but that's what's going on right now. Wow. Dennis, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, as you were telling that story, I was just thinking, I'm like, your story I mean, thinking about that long uh, line of first responders is just like thousands and thousands of right. first responders and other healthcare providers across the country, across the world right now. Um, and like you said, you do have the opportunity to self-quarantine away from your families, but so many people do not. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, really, really appreciate hearing about what that experience was like for, for you. Of course. So, Dennis, you just gave us like a ton of details to work with. And thank you for sharing, especially information about what you're going through right now. Like, as I'm listening, I'm basically like in this position of saying I I can't even imagine. Um, If I could, I want to ask you uh, for our listeners and, and those of us who are really monitoring the situation as much as we can. What are the most pressing and urgent considerations regarding this crisis from a health standpoint that you could like tell us about? Yeah, no, that's that's a really important question. Um, it, while it's true that this epidemic and this pandemic is, is exposing the weaknesses, what's what's needed what's needed right now is for the governments at every level to take action. And unfortunately, they've been stumbling over their their actions. Um, in my opinion, the head of infectious disease, whoever the CDC equivalent is in China, should have been on the phone with the CDC here six, eight weeks ago. There should have been an international conversation about how do we uh, prevent the spread of this virus, a collaboration. People could have been talking about, here's what we tried. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. This seemed to be effective. Definitely don't try this thing because it doesn't work. That conversation should have been happening six to eight weeks ago. So now the problem is we are up to our ankles in this, um, in this country. And in its countries like Italy, they're up to their necks in it. And it's 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 a real it's a real problem there. We're seeing um, inklings of what's happening in New York of, of the of how bad things are getting in New York right now. And I think it's a matter of time before it starts to um, come into uh, other parts of the country. And so the, I think the most important urgent considerations right now is that we need um, proper equipment. Um, if nurses are sick, <coughs> if they're not. <laughs> if they're not able to care for other people, that's going to be a big problem. Um, in this country right now, there's 
180,000 uh, ventilators. But as far as people to operate those ventilators and, pay, and places to put them, there's only about a capacity of about 100,000. So ventilators are for people to get through the illness, to basically support their breathing while their body fights off um, the, the virus. And there's just not enough of them right now. So it's good that uh, they've said, well, we're going to start production on this. But again, these conversations should have happened uh, weeks weeks ago. Similar with PPE, professional I'm sorry, personal protective equipment. We're talking about N95 masks, um, eye shields, uh, gowns. All those things should have gone into kicked into high production weeks ago. Now that now a lot of hospitals are trying to scramble to make sure they have enough of them. Um, they're telling nurses in many hospitals right now to wear them for several days, which to me doesn't make any sense. Um, how are you going to have some kind of you could have some kind of foreign object, you know, a virus get on the outside of the mask. Um, you touch it to take it off or, or you use it again. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so but that's a that's a big thing that people are that nurses in particular are fighting for is getting more um, personal protective equipment. Finally, testing has got to be ramped up. The way that they were able to get in front of this in South Korea is they were just testing people, like I was saying earlier, because if you know you have it, then you'll self-isolate, stay away uh, and um not spread to other people. There's this, you know, term being thrown around. I'm sure everyone's familiar with with it. And it's basically flatten the curve. And the reason you want to flatten the curve is because you want to slow down the spread of the disease so that people who are really who get really sick and need that extra support won't will have access to that. Because if you spike uh, the number of illnesses and you you basically what you do is you overwhelm the capacity of ICU beds to care for those people. And that's when you're going to have um, battlefield decisions being made, which are horrible, horrible decisions. I was reading an article in The Atlantic about in Italy. They basically set up um, a, a triage system where they would decide who gets a vent and who doesn't. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a healthcare provider to make a decision uh, on that level. It's inconscionable. Yeah. Uh, most definitely. Um, I think you kind of answered a lot of this in your last question um, in terms of the PPE, um, the protective equipment that is needed for workers. But I'm spending a lot of time thinking about we have our nurses and our first responders. Um, and But we also have a lot of other, um, you know, frontline workers that don't aren't getting a right. touch of attention. Like we have our right. custodians in our hospitals. We have 100%. cafeteria workers at our schools supermarket clerks, um, clerks at hardware stores um, and different stores across our country. What are some additional considerations besides the PPE that we that you think um, that we need to think about for these workers in particular? Well, yeah, those workers are very important. because it, I think it shows like how our society runs. It doesn't run because uh, Ken Griffin decides to drop some change out of his pocket and help poor people uh, in this state. It happens because people who do the work every day come to work. They stock the grocery stores. They deliver the food. They clean buildings. They uh, staff um, clinics. That's that's how things happen in our society. And I think it's 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 shining a spotlight on the importance of those people. And that's why it's important um, that we support them and give them the kind of uh, backup they need. I absolutely agree that we shouldn't just be talking about, you know, nurses and doctors. We nurses and doctors can't work if they don't get fed. They're not going to get fed if grocery stores aren't open. The people who work in grocery stores are, to be honest, 
as likely to get in contact with somebody who's sick as someone who works in a hospital. Because it, like I said earlier, the, this virus is a, is a silent traveler where it will go on people as they go about their, na- their, their, their normal business. And that's why we have to test people so that the people who are positive are staying home and having other people go out into the world and get those things for them. Um, I think the other thing is very important to consider is the people whose jobs have been lost. Uh, this this bailout that they're talking about to give people $1,200, I mean, to somebody who's a restaurant worker or works in a, in a place that has been shut down and laid off, like how are they supposed to support their family on $1,200? That is ridiculous. There are resources that exist in this country. When the, when the, when the stock market was crashing a couple of weeks ago, they found with a snap of their fingers, $1.5 trillion. They just dumped it. They're about to dump a bunch more money into uh, the, the stock market and big businesses like um, United Airlines uh, and other banks who having who are having credit trouble with this latest bailout package. It's it's really a bailout for these big corporations. So there are resources that need to go out there, but they need to go to the people who actually do the work, the people who are being directly affected by this. Um, that's where the help is needed. Um, thank you, Dennis. Really, like those are the insights. Kind of, I think people are missing, and I really appreciate you highlighting that. Um, one thing, like that, I've been thinking about throughout this entire process, because we're educators and I know many of us are at home wrapping up for e-learning, working on um, ways to kind of enrich the lives of our students, even though we can't come in contact with them. I keep thinking about, um, and, and I'd love to get your insights. What do you anticipate when we do go back? And I know it seems like right now, every day we, we just want to go day at a time. But like when we do go back, what do you believe is going to be needed to safely open up our schools? Well, I mean, there's just I think the fact that many school districts and anybody who's thinking about it is basically thinking how schools are going to open before the end of the year is going to be pretty hard. I I, I really uh, uh, if I had to bet, I don't really see schools opening up. I think the thing about when schools actually do open up is there's going to be an incredible amount of trauma that that students families, uh, teachers themselves, staff members at schools will have gone through. Let's remember that who's going to be affected disproportionately by this crisis. It's not going to be the the people who live up in Winnetka. It's not going to be the families up in Glencoe. They're on their yachts. They're in their uh, summer homes in, in, in God knows where, hold up. God bless them. That's great for them. The The people who are going to suffer the most are the poor people. It's people of color who are going to bear the brunt of this. And those are our students. There is already a horrible death gap in this in this city. It has uh, become one of the greatest gaps in in Englewood uh, on, on the on the south side. The ex- expected life, ex- the life expectancy for someone in that neighborhood is 60 in Streeterville, which is eight miles just north of of Englewood. It's 90. That is it is totally wrong that you would have a 30-year gap between people uh, who live literally in the same city. And those are the, and that gap is going to actually and tragically get greater as this virus tears through this country. People of color and poor people disproportionately have asthma, they have diabetes, they have heart failure, high blood pressure. All these things are going to are going to be more difficult make it more difficult for people to uh, deal with this kind of infection. And so it's not, and it's not about people don't have those conditions because of their skin color. It's skin tone has nothing to do with the diagnosis of those things. We live in a racist society where people's stress levels and cortisol levels go up, and it causes all kinds of health problems. Uh, people can, lit- you can literally Google it, and it's been written about 
for, for decades, how race affects people's health. And so these are the people who are going to be disproportionately affected. And those are our students. Those are our communities. Those are the people that we serve. So when they come back into the schools, there's going to be need for trauma support. There's going to be need for uh, health support. There's going, to be, there's going to be financial need for those people across the city. And we need to take the resources that exist um, and, and put it towards them. I was doing just some back on the, on the napkin math. And I mean, you know, I don't know Ken Griffin. He's probably a great guy. He's the, he's the CEO of Citadel. He's an investment banker. Uh, or whatever hedge fund manager, whatever it is he does, but he, you know, he gave like four million dollars to the city for uh, to feed them. That's great. The guy is worth twelve and a half billion dollars. That's with a B. So if you extrapolate out the math, let's say that me and my family is worth a hundred thousand. That would be him giving four million is the same as me giving thirty two dollars. Now. I've, I've given more than that already to, 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 to campaigns in the last couple of weeks to donate uh, to people who need it. But there is a lot more resources that people like Ken Griffin could be giving to the people who need it. And that needs to happen now. Yeah, um, you bring up so, so many very important points. Something that I've been thinking a lot about is how, first of all, the, uh, at the beginning part, we think about reentry curriculum. And in like a broader idea, we think about how we reimagine so many things in our society. And this is in many ways an opportune time to push for all of these things that we desperately need. Um, And I would love for school nurses to be able to join in every single classroom to have conversations with our students about, you know, supporting the, the mental health providers in our schools with, you know, how they actually stay safe in their homes and things that they can do when they come back. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think we have the capacity to have our school nurses do that. And I think that is a extreme danger um, yeah. when we think about going back. Um, because I know myself as a teacher, I'm not equipped to talk to students about um, many of the, the health concerns and, and answer the, and field their questions. Um, so that's something that I'm really thinking a lot about. And so I don't know if you have some ideas for like what you think we could as a union um, or as individuals uh, advocate for um, all of these things that we need. Um, because I, I mean, I do think that we do have time here to think thoughtfully about how this looks. So what do you suggest? That's right. It's, well, it's important. I mean, I and think- it's not to Monday morning quarterback, but the nurses could have been, if we had more of them, A, could have been used in the way that they were intended. When I went to, to school to become a certified school nurse, one of the things that they talked a lot about was as a public health uh, professional. You are in the community, you are monitoring what's going on, you're providing education. What should have happened, and they did, to be honest with you, they closed the schools. It took them too long to close the schools, but in the weeks leading up to them closing the schools, they should have had school nurses in front of classrooms, in front of uh, auditoriums, in staff meetings, talking with them about what it's going to take to slow this virus down. We could have had in-depth conversations about about uh, social distancing, about what it means to have a stay-at-home uh, order. We would, have, I, because the thing is, right now, I mean, the mayor's getting mad about people playing basketball, people using the six oh six. But to me, that's an education gap, and you can close education gaps. You can have people uh, educated about the importance of slowing the virus down and what it means to flatten the curve. I would have had students pull their cell phones out. I know a lot of teachers 
don't like that. But, you know, I get it. Um, and call up a picture. Bring up a picture of grandma. Bring up a picture of grandpa. Look at that picture, and that's the reason that you need to stay home. That's the reason that we're, we're not going to be able to play basketball, a pickup game with, with 12 of your friends. Oh, shit, I don't even know how many people play basketball, obviously. I was just exposed to myself. Um, at, at, at the local... A park. That's the kind of education that can make a difference. So moving forward, I think we need to keep pushing on those things. As a union, I'm so proud to be a member of the CTU because we were we were helping to push to close the schools. It was to me outrageous. I was working that Friday, and I and I and I during my lunch break, I saw that the Tribune had published a, 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 some of the the talking points that Mayor Lightfoot put out saying, here's why the schools need to stay open. And this is all the meanwhile, Catholic schools were closing, uh, schools in Winnetka were closing, the Chicago Lab School were closing. It made zero sense. Uh, all these privileged uh, schools were closing and going, New Trier were going to, to these other kind of distance learning platforms, and we're just supposed to keep hunk, keep keep on chugging and and exposing people to a very dangerous virus, it made no sense. So the CTU was leading the way and saying, no, we need to school, close these schools now. CTU, I think, is, has been leading the way and calling for more nursing staff and more wraparound services about the meeting the needs of our students. So I, I'm really proud to be a member of the CTU, and I'm, I'm glad we're continuing to push on so many of these fronts. Um, you've given us a lot to think about and to be mindful and to respect your time and also, you know, the predicament or the situation you're in. Um, I just want to kind of pivot towards um, asking you kind of a final question while we have you. Um, And really open-ended, is there anything else you feel our members and listeners should know during this period? Any insights, advice, any, any information that is completely urgent or important for people to kind of, you know, take in? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think one thing that I've, I've realized, and again, being stuck down in the basement, um, just, you know, yesterday I was, I was looking on, on, on Facebook. I'm part of two different Facebook uh, groups of nurses who are um, on the front lines doing this work. Uh, one of them has over 11,000 people. Another one has 18,000 people. And the stories I'm hearing are, are, are really um, gut-wrenching uh, and, and people are scared. And when that many nurses get scared, I get scared as well. But we can't just be um, be held down by our fear. We also have to be confident about asking for much more than we've gotten. There, this pandemic has exposed all of the problems that we have in our society when it comes to workplace safety issues, when it comes to, to public health, when it comes to how healthcare is doled out in this country. Health insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies are some of the most profitable industries in the world. This country, we spend more per capita on healthcare than any other country in the world. And while for all that money, we have some of the worst outcomes. More people die during childbirth in this country than in many so, so-called third world countries. More people have higher incidences of high blood pressure, diabetes that are not well controlled because people don't have access to primary care. When Governor Pritzker gets on the on the horn and tells people, call your primary care doctor, that's great for people who actually have primary care doctors. A lot of people for the for them, the primary care doctor is the emergency room. That's not a that's not a sustainable model. So all of these things have been exposed by this pandemic. And so we as activists, as social justice uh, thinkers, need to take um, action right now. We need to we need to be asking for everything. We need to change how everything is run in this country from top to bottom. We have an opportunity to we're gonna have an opportunity to do that. I've heard people talking about Instacart workers going on strike 
tomorrow to fight for safety on their job. I've, I've seen so many nurses who want to join a union. I think a lot of people are drawing very radical conclusions out of the inequalities and the inefficiencies of this system. And that's what we need to, that gives me hope. That gives me hope that we can actually have a better world because we need one. Wow, Dennis, thank you so much uh, for spending your morning with us. Um, you have shared so many really, really important things. Um, I think Moise and I would both agree that this is exactly what the things that we need to be thinking about in the direction we need to move in. Thank you again so much for your time, and we will be in touch. We probably will need an update from you uh, sooner okay. rather than later. Right. Well, thank you. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Thanks, Anne. Appreciate you, Tom.